You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 10, we're going to read together verses 22 and down to the end of the chapter. We're not going to be covering all of that, obviously, this morning, but we are going to be reading that together to kind of catch the context of a new section that we're looking at in John 10. Verse 22, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and the Jews were walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I, will, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, You're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to believe in him and were saying, while John performed no sign, Yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Let's bow our heads together. Our Father, we are grateful again for the opportunity to look into your word, to study it, and to contemplate and, and, and uh, meditate on all of the implications of your wondrous truth. We ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we may behold in your word wonderful things. Help us to see truth and to see Christ for who he is in all of his splendid glory. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. One of the things that I enjoy doing as we study through books of the Bible is to note the, the various themes that sort of surface as we go through a book. And we covered this in adult Sunday school class today. The themes in Scripture are kind of like a tapestry. They, they come to the surface and they go back below the surface and then they come back up to the surface. And they're kind of woven together to create a beautiful picture of the book itself. And that is what we see in John's Gospel. There are a number of themes and perhaps um, more than even I could list here without doing an injustice to it, but three of them are in this sort of woven together in this passage that we have been considering. Three of the prominent themes in John's gospel are, first, belief and unbelief. Second, the security of those who believe. That's in all over John's gospel. And then third, and this is probably the primary theme of John's gospel, is the deity of Christ. Belief and unbelief, the security of those who believe, and the deity of Jesus Christ. And we see all of those three themes woven together, and they sort of come together into this passage that we've been looking at in the last several weeks. And when we see a, 
sort of a, a coming together of all kinds of themes like that, we should be asking the question, why are all of those themes present in this one passage? What do they say about one another? We might answer it this way. What is it that you and I are to believe? That's one theme, belief and unbelief. What is it that you and I are to believe about Jesus? We are to believe that he is God, that he is the I am of the Old Testament. We saw that in John 8.24, John 8.28, John 8.58. We've seen that over and over again as Jesus has laid down to the Jews the, the terms, of, as it were, of believing in him. You must believe not that he is just the Messiah, which the Jews were ready to do, many of them. You must believe not that he is a rabbi, which the Jews were ready to believe that, many of them. But the issue is, do you believe that Jesus is God? And that was what the Jews had to be confronted with. Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is God in human flesh, and so will you bow the knee in humble obedience and adoration and embrace this one who is the God-man? That's what you must believe. So what is it that we believe? We must believe that Jesus is God. And if you do not believe that Jesus is God, you will die in your sins. You will perish. You will go to hell. Now you can believe that Jesus is God and still go to hell because that belief doesn't save you. But you must believe that Jesus is God in order to go to heaven. If you deny that belief in the deity and the divinity of Jesus Christ, you do not have the true Son. And if you do not have the Son, you do not have the Father, you have the wrong God. You're worshiping the wrong God. It's idolatry. And the Jesus that you worship could never have paid for your sins. And you will perish everlastingly because you are worshiping and trusting in the wrong God. You have the wrong object for your faith. So having believed that Jesus is God, how does the security element tie in to those two themes? So I believe in... Christ, I believe that He is God, that is actually what makes me secure. It is not my belief in Christ as the Messiah that necessarily makes me secure, or my belief that He died and rose again that makes me secure. I am trusting not in an ordinary man, but I am trusting in the God-man. So it is my belief in Jesus Christ as God that secures my salvation, because the one I have trusted is none other than God Himself. And having trusted in Christ, I am as secure as the one who has promised to save me and offered to save me, I am as secure as he is able. I am as secure as he is powerful. I am as secure as he is mighty. It is because of the one in whom I have trusted that I am secure. So that's how the deity of Christ, belief and unbelief, and the security of the sheep all kind of come together. And so having Jesus having described the difference between belief and unbelief, and having described now in the clearest conceivable terms the security of those who believe in him, we might expect in this context to have a clear, unambiguous declaration of his deity, and that is exactly what we find in verse 30. We covered up to the end of verse 29 last Sunday, and now we are at verse 30. I and the Father are one. And we're going to cover more than just that one verse. But I want you to understand how that one verse, that one sentence, kind of functions in two ways in this text. It is at the same time not only a the capstone of the Good Shepherd discourse, it's sort of the climax of that discourse, it's the end of that, but it also is a transition into the next few verses, which is the end of the chapter. So we have here the sort of the summary statement, the ending of the Good Shepherd discourse and Jesus' explanation and application of that, but at the same time, this introduces us to the rest of the chapter because now the focus changes. The focus in John now changes from Jesus explaining his role as the Good Shepherd and the security of the sheep to defending his deity. And that's what the rest of this chapter is all about. That whole passage that I just explained, we just read together is Jesus' answer to them with their charge that you are blaspheming because you say that you are the Son of God. And really, this is the end of the Good Shepherd Discourse where Jesus claimed to be their Messiah, which was an impl implied claim to deity. And now he is stating outright, I and the Father 
are one. And that is an explicit claim to be equal to God himself. Equal to God. It is an explicit claim to deity, verse 30 is. You remember verse 30 really is the end of Jesus' answer to their question, are you the Messiah? Did you catch that? Do you remember that? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. So what does Jesus tell them? <laughs> they actually get far more than they bargained for, right? They just want to know, are you the Messiah? Oh yeah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the good shepherd. Here's how I function as the shepherd, as the Messiah of the sheep. But then verse 30 is far more than just the Messiah. Jesus answered their question and then some. Not only is he the Messiah, he claims deity. So let me give you a brief outline of what we're going to be looking at in the next two weeks, hoping two weeks. Today, we're going to look at his claim to deity in verse 30, and then we're going to look at their charge of blasphemy in verses 31 through 33. And then next week, we're going to take his answer to their charge. And I didn't want to jump into his answer this week and kind of divide that up because his argument really needs to be seen all in one chunk. So we have his claim to deity, their charge of blasphemy, and then Jesus' answer to that charge beginning in verses 34, really almost to the end of the chapter. So first of all, the claim to deity, verse 30. Look at it again. I and the Father are one. Now, in that statement, you have perhaps in the most concise and clearest and uh, succinct form that we could possibly have a statement as to the equality of the Father and the Son and the relationship between the Father and the Son. And there is contained in verse 30 a central, two actually, two central truths of our doctrine of the Trinity. Now, you may ask, if we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, then why in this passage does Jesus not mention the Holy Spirit? Because when we talk about the doctrine of the triune God, the doctrine of the Trinity, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have in this passage the Father and the Son. Why is there absent any reference to or mention of the Holy Spirit? That is because in this context, Jesus is not answering their questions about the Holy Spirit. He's answering their questions about whom? About himself. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And so Jesus now is going to describe to them his relationship with the Father. So it's not that the Holy Spirit is not in view. He just isn't in view in this particular passage as Jesus really is describing his relationship and his equality to the Father. But keep in mind that everything we're reading about and understanding about Jesus and his equality with the Father can also be said of the Holy Spirit and his equality to the Father or Jesus and his equality to the Holy Spirit. So though we don't have a full definition of the Trinity, we have here truths which are worked into our understanding of the doctrine of the triune God. So what are those two truths that I mentioned? There are two of them. First, Jesus speaks here of two separate and distinct persons. Do you recognize that? I and the Father are one. Two persons. Two persons. Now in our doctrine of the Trinity, there are three persons. Jesus here is concerned with explaining to us his relationship to the Father. So we have here mention of two persons, not one person. And it's important to keep this in mind because as we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, we neither confound nor confuse the persons. We don't get the work of the Father or the person of the Father mixed up with the Son. Now, is the Father, is He really sort of the Son in disguise? Or is the Son sort of acting like the Father? Are they kind of confused or jumbled together? Not at all. They're two separate and distinct persons. And on and on through the Gospel of John, we have seen Jesus refer to these separate and distinct persons. In this context... Jesus describes the Father as giving a people to Him. All that the Father gives me will come to me, He says in John 6, verse verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. So we have in this context two separate and distinct persons. We have the Father, and what does the Father do? He chooses a people, and He gives them to whom? To the Son, a separate and distinct person. 
The second thing to notice is that these two separate and distinct persons are one. Now what does Jesus mean by one? In what way is He one with the Father? There, if Jesus had intended to say that I and the Father are one person, He would have used a masculine form of the word one, indicating one person, but He doesn't. He uses the neuter form of the word one, indicating one thing. Now there's a way in which Jesus could have said, look, I am the Father, if He had wanted to say that, but He doesn't say that. Instead, He says, I and the Father are one thing. One thing. So we have in our doctrine of the Trinity, do you guys remember back in chapter 5 we went through what the doctrine of the Trinity was? We spent a whole lesson on that. Now if you are confused about what the doctrine of the Trinity is, what it means, what it is, what it isn't, and all of the perversions of it today, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. I'm not going to retrace that ground. I'm just going to give you the definition of the doctrine of the Trinity. Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Within the one being that is God, one being, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, three persons, one being, one being, three persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we get into wrong views of the Trinity when we begin to confound the persons and say, well, there's one person, or when we begin to say, well, we're worshiping three distinct beings. We're not. One being, three persons. You understand the difference between person and being. Understand the difference between person and being. If you have an earthworm, how many beings do you have? One being. One entity. How many persons in an earthworm? Zero. You as an individual are how many beings? One being. And how many persons are you? One person. Alright? Excluding for a moment if you have sort of mental issues. You are one being and one person. God is one being and three persons. There's a distinction between being and persons. God exists as one being and three persons. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. Now in this one verse, Jesus identifies two separate persons, both of whom are one being, one substance and one essence. So what this means is Jesus and the Father share the same substance, the same nature, the same essence, and the same being. Jesus is just as much fully that being, that one substance, essence, and nature as the Father is. And we say the same thing about the Holy Spirit. And we're going to learn that later on in the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 through 16, about the role of the person of the Holy Spirit. So when you talk about Jesus, we are saying He is full deity, full divinity. And the rest of Scripture bears this out. Now there are there are two heresies that verse 30 answers. Let me introduce you to these two heresies. And I mentioned these before. Sabellianism and Arianism. Now don't run away because those are big sounding words for really simple concepts. Sabellianism is the belief in one person and one being. In other words, this takes the Father and the Son and crams them all together and says it's actually one person, not three separate and distinct persons. Sometimes that belief goes by the, uh, a title called modalism today. Modalism is the idea, or Sabellianism is the idea, that God is one being and He's also one person. But He comes out on stage, as it were, in human history, and He acts like the Father for a period of time, then He kind of goes back and then He comes out and acts like the Son for a period of time, and then He comes back, goes out and He comes back and acts like the Spirit for a period of time. So He manifests Himself in three separate and distinct ways. But it's only one person playing three roles. Like I play the role of pastor, husband, and father. But I'm just one person and I'm just one being. That's what a Sabellian or a modalist would say. Popular, current modalists would include T.D. Jakes, prosperity preacher T.D. Jakes, and Phillips, Craig, and Dean. 
Now, those are men not who just can't do a very good job of articulating the doctrine of the Trinity. Those are men who can do as good of a job articulating the biblical doctrine of the Trinity as I have just done. And then they will say, we reject that, and instead we believe this. So they are not just confused Trinitarians, they are anti-Trinitarians. So they have a wrong God. That's modalism or Sabellianism. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he is answering the Sabellians, two separate and distinct persons. If you're a modalist, how do you explain the Father giving a people to the Son, as Jesus has just described in this context? How would you do that as a modalist? You think that the Father selects a people, or God as a being selects a people in the role of Father, and then sort of gives them, and then turns around and receives them real quick? Oh, that was nice of me to give that to me just like that. How does He do that? It has to be two separate and distinct persons. The Father acting and doing something toward and for the Son, two separate and distinct persons, answers Sabellianism. The second one was Arianism. Arianism is the belief that Jesus is a created being, he's a great being, a very godlike being, but he is not equal to the Father. He is lesser than or inferior to the Father. Modern day Arians would be like Jehovah's Witnesses, who believe that Jesus is a created being. He is a uh, created being who is very godlike. He's sort of a god, quote unquote, after a fashion, but he's not equal to the Father. Jesus says, I and the Father, that answers Sabellianism, are one, that answers Arianism. That is a claim to equality with God the Father. It is a full claim to deity. In John 14, when Jesus said, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He can say that not because Jesus and the Father are the same person, but because he and the Father are the same being. So the full manifestation of God in time is in Jesus Christ. To behold him and his nature and his glory is to behold everything about the nature and glory of the Father that can be beheld. Because if you see Jesus, you see the very nature of God Himself, you see all that God is in the person of Christ, that is to behold the nature and essence of the Father as well. So though they are one being, they're two separate and distinct persons. In 1 John 2.23, John writes, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. You understand that to deny Christ is to deny God. That's why if you deny the Son, you don't have the Father. If you have the wrong idea of who the Son is, you have the wrong idea of who God is. If you get the nature and the person of Christ wrong, you get the nature and the person of God wrong, and you worship thus the wrong God. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Colossians 2 verse 9, Paul says, In Christ dwells all the fullness of God in bodily form. Everything that can be beheld or understood, all of the nature and the fullness of the divine essence, is contained in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of His, that is God's glory, and the exact representation of His nature. And that Christ upholds all things by the word of His power. And when He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So there is an individual in Hebrews 1.3 who is the exact representation of the glory and the nature and the radiance and the essence of God who is also with God. He is God with God. He is God seated at the right hand of God. That's two persons, one being. And isn't that how John began his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God. This individual who became flesh was with God, and the Word was God. He is both God, and he is with God. Two persons, one divine essence. Now there are some who would kind of minimize this statement in verse 30, and they would say something like this. Well, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he's not describing the nature, the essence, the 
the substance or the being. He's just describing his intention. You see, it was the intention of the Father to save the sheep, and it's the intention of Jesus to save the sheep. It's the will of the Father to save the sheep. It's the will of the Son to save the sheep. It's the will of the Son to keep the sheep secure. It's the will of the Father to keep the sheep secure. And therefore, Jesus and the Father are one. One in intention and will and desire and purpose. If that was all that Jesus was saying, what would the Jews have said in verse 31? Would they have picked up stones to stone him? That was all he meant? They would have never done that. They would have never charged. That's not blasphemy. To say that God's will is my will or that I will the same thing God wills, that's not blasphemy. You know what that is? That's the ideal. That's what we ought to pursue. But that's not a blasphemous statement. The Jews understood exactly what he meant. It was clear to them exactly what he was saying. I and the Father are one, one in nature, one in substance. It is equality with God that Jesus is claiming, and that's exactly what they understood him to be, a claim of in their ears and from their vantage point, it was blasphemy. Now let me offer you a couple of a couple of applications of this doctrine of the equality of the Father and the Son before we move on to the, the charge of blasphemy. First of all, it is the intention of both the Father and the Son to save those who belong to the Father and the Son. We ought never to think that the intention of the Father and the intention or will of the Son are separate and distinct things. As if the Father is really trying to damn you to hell for all of eternity, but the Son has got to step in and do something that the Father doesn't want Him to do. You ever run across people who have that idea? Sometimes we think that. The Father wants to damn me. The Son wants to save me. Man, am I ever glad that the Son showed up. If the Son had showed up, you realize that the reason that the Father gave you to the Son was to save you? It is the intention of both the Father and the Son to save His sheep. That we never can think of God, the persons of the Trinity, as having contrary wills to one another. If they are all the same being, there is only one divine will. That's why Jesus said, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I see the Father doing, that's what I do. What he's saying is not that he is powerless, but that he, as God, is unable to do anything contrary to what the Father would have him to do. The will of the Father and the will of the Son are one. And if it is the will of the Father to save people, it is the will of the Son to save people. And if it is the will of the Father to damn somebody for their unbelief, it is the will of the Son to damn that individual for their unbelief as well. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have the same will, the same purpose, and the same intention. So if God intends to do something, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three persons, all have the exact same intention. Likewise, this should tell us that we are loved by both members of the Trinity. Both the Father and the Son love us. You can never think as a Christian that I am loved by Christ. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But the Father, He is really angry with me. It's not possible. It's not possible. If I am loved by the Son, that love comes from the very nature and character of God Himself. If I am loved by the Son, I am loved. I am the beloved of the Father as well. And I am loved by the Holy Spirit. Because they all have the same love. There's a third thing that we ought to note, and that is that our confidence in Christ, if He is God, if He is one with the Father, our confidence is well placed. We're not simply putting our trust in a Jewish rabbi. We're not simply putting our trust in a Messiah or a a prophet or a good man or a moral teacher. Confidence and trust that is placed in Christ to save is placed in God Himself. That is a well-placed confidence. That is why Jesus can say, if you do not believe Me, you will perish. Because to not believe Him is to not believe God. To trust in Him is to trust in the triune God himself. And a fourth thing, and I ran across this recently, and I was reminded of this recently, we must never think of think of Jesus and God the Father being like two separate deities who are in conflict. And I run across people once in a while who will say something like this, that God of the Old Testament, wow, what a, what a vindictive, vicious, 
hateful, vengeful, uh, uh, aggressive God that was, aren't you glad Jesus showed up and now everything is different? You can't think of God that way. That's idolatry. (laughs) Do you realize that the Jesus of the New Testament is the God who flooded the entire world and saved only eight people and destroyed all living flesh? Do you realize that Jesus of the New Testament is the God who rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah and commanded the stoning of adulterers and homosexuals and molesters and uh, rapists? That is the God of the Old Testament. Nothing has changed. But what we see in Christ is God's intent to save. We see grace all the way through the Old Testament. We see grace in Christ. They are not two separate distinct ideas. God did not evolve over those 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament where he finally came to a new understanding and said, you know, I really should be more gracious to people. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to show them my good side. Jesus and the Father are one. One in purpose, one in nature. And to think otherwise is idolatry. To think otherwise is to worship a different God. Now, second, the charge of blasphemy, beginning in verse 31. What did the Jews respond to this? Jesus concludes his statement on the security of the sheep by saying, I and the Father are one. In other words, we are doubly secure. But look how the Jews respond in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. There's something interesting there that doesn't quite come out in our English translation. And it is the reference to picking up stones. This is kind of curious. And I just point this out so you can appreciate the precision and the accuracy of both John and the Holy Spirit who inspired this text. When it says they picked up stones to stone him, it is a different word than what's used at the end of chapter 8 when after Jesus claimed to be the I am, before Abraham was I am, they picked up stones to stone him. It's a different word that's used for picking up stones. This word in John 10 is the word for picking something up and carrying something away. Picking it up and carrying it. Now why is that significant? John 8 takes place in the temple. John 10 takes place in the temple. But you remember what we read at the beginning? John John 10 takes place. This episode is happening where? In Solomon's portico. Solomon's portico was the only area of the temple that wasn't under construction at the time. And what happened when the temple was under construction? What was readily lying around that they were using in the construction of the temple? Stones. But this happened in an area where there were no stones lying around. So in John 8.58, when they picked up stones, they just had to reach down and pick something up off the ground that was nearby. But in John chapter 10, it says they picked up and carried stones to stone him. In other words, you can imagine at the end of verse 30, a few of those Jews standing around there saying, I'll go get the rocks. You stay here. And they went somewhere in the temple compound where rocks were, and they fetched them, and they brought them, carried them to where Jesus was at. That's the precision of the inspired text. Isn't that great? that John here is actually picturing two different types of picking up stones. So you can imagine them showing up, maybe a Jew carrying three or four rocks, handing them out to his friends. When Jesus asks the question in verse 32, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Now, I don't know what works it was, and works would be signs or miracles, compassionate works, good works, good deeds, that these Jews had seen Jesus perform. But it was many of them. These people who are standing there with rocks in their hands had been observers of some of the kindest works of miracles that Jesus could have performed. For instance, cleansing the temple in chapter 2. Not something they would have liked. That was something that infuriated, but it was a good work. Were you going to stone me for cleansing the temple? For my zeal for the Father's house? Or John chapter 5, the man who was lame for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. When Jesus said to him, pick up your pallet, pick up your bed, and walk. And the man got up after 38 years of being lame and he walked. Are you going to stone me for that good work? Or how about making a man who was born blind to see, John chapter 9. 
Had they seen these works and so many others? And so Jesus asked them, for which of these works do you stone me? Now here's the key. Do you think Jesus really thinks that they're going to stone him for his works? He doesn't, does he? He knows why they want to stone him. He knows that they want to stone him for what he said in verse 30. He knows that it's not for his works that they want to stone him. He knows it's for his words that they want to stone him. So why does Jesus ask them this question? I've shown you many good works. For which of them are you going to stone me? I think for two reasons. First, to remind them of the evidence that they had seen. It is almost as if Jesus is saying, okay, hold on a second. All of these things that you have witnessed, I've just said something. You have witnessed the evidence that my claim is true. For which one of these evidences are you stoning me? And this would had to have called back to their mind, the man born blind, the crippled man at Bethesda, maybe the feeding of the multitude. How many other miracles had they seen, compassionate and good works that Jesus had done, that that would have called back to their mind? Instantly what Jesus is doing is he is laying out in that one sentence all of his good deeds that he has done. And he is reminding them, this is the evidence. You're stoning me for my claim. Yes, that's true. But remember the evidence. For which one of those evidences are you stoning me? They're not interested in any of the evidence. In fact, they dismiss the evidence entirely. But the second thing he is wanting them to do is he is challenging them to prove to him or to prove to anybody that he has done anything worthy of stoning. Had Jesus done anything that deserved a stoning? Normally you executed people for horrible crimes, things that they did. But they weren't executing him for that. And it's almost a challenge. Analyze my works. Look at my deeds, the things that I've done. Is there anything, anything of all that I have done, all the merciful and compassionate things that I have done, the good deeds and the signs, all of that evidence, anything in there that is worthy of a stoning? And this really makes them focus in and say, no, it is because we hear you say that you are God. That's why we are stoning you. It is making them confess that they have heard accurately what it is that he has claimed. So that for the record, verbally and in written form, there can be no doubt as to whether they have understood or not. They have understood very clearly, and Jesus is confronting them with that understanding. They have understood very clearly, and that's why they're trying to stone him. They would have quoted, for instance, Leviticus 24.16. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall surely stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So they would have had rocks in one hand and that Bible verse in the other. And filled with murderous rage, they are wanting to put to death a man whom they have just understood has claimed equality with God. Making God his father, calling God his father, and claiming to be one with him was a claim to deity. But it is not his works for which they want to stone him, but his words. Look at verse 33. The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They dismiss his works, which they should not have done, because it is his works which really prove his words. And they want to just focus in on the works to the exclusion of all the evidence. But he's produced evidence, hasn't he? Did they embrace the evidence? Did they receive the evidence? No, they dismissed the evidence. They didn't want to discuss the evidence. Because if they admitted the evidence into their discussion, guess what? It would have led them to one conclusion, and that conclusion they would not, they would not tolerate. They would not tolerate the conclusion that this one standing before them was their God, was the righteous and holy one of Israel. They could not tolerate that conclusion, and so they would not admit any of the evidence that would have driven them to that conclusion. It's kind of like the debate on origins today. Anything that even suggests that the earth might not be as old as we say it is or that we didn't evolve from monkeys, we don't want to hear any of that evidence. All we want is this evidence, the stuff that agrees with our conclusion. 
And they are dismissing all of the evidence and embracing instead only his words and examining only his words to the exclusion of all of the deeds that he had done. I want you to notice something. I want you to notice how zeal, how zeal for the Lord sometimes can be used by people as a cloak for great iniquity. And that's what these Jews are doing. They are claiming a zeal for God. We are zealous for God's holy name. You are a blasphemer. You've blasphemed God's name, and it's up to us to make sure that God's name is honored. And so in a pretended zeal for God's honor, they are using that as a cloak for their iniquity. Really what they want to do is extinguish the light. It is because they hate the light and they love their darkness and they are in bondage to sin and they love their sin and they don't want to give that up that when the Holy One of Israel confronts them with their sin, they would rather stone Him and they are about to, they are intending to do, the greatest iniquity conceivable to kill God in human flesh. And to do that, they cloak that with the veil of zeal for God. No, no, we want to kill you because of our zeal for the name of the Lord. And people do that all the time. They use their zeal for God as a cloak for all kinds of mischief and iniquity. And the last thing, and we'll close with this, I want you to notice how their statement at the end of verse 33, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. I want you to notice that that is the mirror opposite of what is true. It's not just that they, it's not just that they came to the wrong conclusion or judged him according to the flesh rather than uh, from God's revelation. That is actually the mirror opposite. They're saying, you being a mere man have made yourself out, elevated yourself to the point of being God. Philippians chapter 2, he who was in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God or did not consider his equality with God something to be held on to at all costs. But he did what? He humbled himself and took the form of his servant and came in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even further to the point of death, even death on the cross. The truth is not that he was a mere man making himself out to be God, but the truth is he was God who made himself a man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus of Nazareth was not a man who made himself out to be God. He was God who made himself a man to pay the price for sinners and for all who will believe upon him. But such is the blindness and the hatred and the hostility of men who are in their sin to the one true God that, listen, if sinful fallen man was able, he would grab God by the throat and drag him off of his throne and brutally murder him. If sinful man was able to do that, he would do it. What is the evidence of that? This passage. Because that's exactly what they're trying to do. They are trying to brutally murder the Holy One of Israel. That's their intention. And such is the state of fallen men and fallen hearts that we love iniquity in our fallenness that much and we hate the light that much that we would actually seek the murder of the one true God. That's what we would do. And we'll look at Jesus' answer to their charge of blasphemy next week. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we thank You for this stark reminder of the sinfulness of the human heart and what we were like before You saved us and rescued us by Your your grace. We thank You for the reminder that the God, the the, the Savior in whom we trust, is none other than God Himself. We thank you that you, our blessed triune God, would plan a salvation which is so glorious and so infinite beyond our ability to understand that you would choose us, that you would love us, that you, Father, would give us to the Son, and that the Son would come and die for us, and that the Spirit would regenerate us and fill us all for your eternal glory and all for our good. And we thank you that you have done these things for your glory and that no man can boast. All of this is the work of your grace, and it is for your glory alone. We thank you, our blessed and gracious triune God, for what you revealed in Scripture concerning yourself and your Son and your plan for us and the grace that you show us. 
It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.